Greetings, my good people. How are you? How you doing? How you feel? Are you good? Doing well? On vacation? Back to work? Yes, I know it's Monday, and I'm sure you didn't hit the Mega Millions jackpot that was actually in the billions, or even the Powerball 750 million jackpot this past Saturday, but you know what? You're alive. You're breathing. You're working. Doing well. Searching for those answers. Hopefully reaching those goals. Well, guess what? Continue to do so because I am continuing to reach my goal to deliver the latest and greatest of what goes on in the world of sports, as this is the J Reels Podcast. I am your host, J Reels. First time listening, taking a shot on who's this guy, J Reels, what is he all about? He's talking sports. Okay, what makes me different from the next guy? Well, not only do I want to deliver passionate, knowledgeable, informative, but most importantly, credible sports talk here as I deliver this to you each and every Monday whether it's on the gridiron, on the diamond, on the ice, on the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it, from my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J. Rose Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. So again, first time, I really appreciate you taking the time to download and listen to the podcast and welcome aboard. And for those who have been with me from the first show to the 10th to the 20th and so on, I welcome you guys back. Here on a Monday, October the 29th, just two days before Halloween and the month of November, three days at that, and here I am to get into everything that's going on, whether it's the NFL, the jet season looks like it's starting to slowly but swiftly, or swiftly I should say, drift out to sea, and the Giants, as we all know, they are certainly way out there as the season continues to go south for the football Giants. We'll touch a little bit on the NHL and what's happening locally with the Islanders, Rangers, and Devils as well as the NBA scene later on the podcast. And uh, with everything that's going on, even in college football, we have a couple of big games this coming Saturday, but we'll recap a little bit about a couple of big games that took place over the weekend. But we must begin with what happened last night in Los Angeles as the Boston Red Sox, after 108 wins, after a little bit of a scare early on in the postseason, considering that the Yankees went to Boston and split those first two games, including that game two where Gary Sanchez hit the two home runs and a lot of people thought, including myself, that the Red Sox were on the ropes. But pretty much from that point on, it has been smooth sailing for this Red Sox team. I know that you can look at the Astros series. They lost game one where Chris Sale just barely made it out of the, I guess it was the third inning at that uh, Saturday night in Boston. But ever since pretty much that time, they have not looked back. They have played well. They have been there dominating selves, and I understand to the zillion of Yankee fans that are out there and do not want to hear this, but guess what? The Boston Red Sox are the 2018 World Series champions. And there's a lot to chew on when you talk about this series. To me, the three key things in this series, and right, we could go game by game. We could talk about the first two games of Fenway and you know get into the epic 18-inning game that's uh, Friday into Saturday morning where Max Muncy hit the home run off of Vivaldi in the 18th inning to what took place Saturday, which is going to be pretty much number one when you think about this 2018 World Series. And then last night, it was pretty much a formality. But the first thing I'm going to look at when I think back to this series is the clutch hitting that the Red Sox, not only just in the series, pretty much the whole postseason, but how they were able just to get these huge two-out hits. It does not matter. It's almost automatic that this team, whether they're behind, whether they're tied whether they're even have the lead for them to get these big two out hits it's almost hard to fathom 
And I don't think you'll ever see a display like this in a postseason ever again because they had just gotten timely hit after timely hit after timely hit. I don't even need to go through the whole list because it's pretty much been magnified if you've watched the games and obviously all the highlight shows and the recaps and so on and so forth. So pretty much what I want to highlight in this uh, segment is the just the clutch hitting of two key spots in the series, which I thought were to turn the whole series around. You look at game two, when you look back at that at bat with J.D. Martinez as they headed into that bottom of the fifth inning down two to one, and with two outs, he plunks that blooper into right field to score the two runs to make it a 4-2 game, and the Red Sox hung on from there. And when you look at that point of the series, and pretty much that postseason, where the Red Sox had batted 415 with runners in scoring position and two outs. 415. I don't know what the league average was throughout the course of the year, but as we all know, it's about pitching and timely hitting in the postseason. And that, to me, was just a microcosm of what the Red Sox were this whole postseason. And granted, I understand you could look at what happened even in Game 3, where Jackie Bradley Jr. hits the home run with two outs off Kenley Jansen. And despite the fact that they ended up losing in 18 innings, 3.30 in the morning here on the East Max Muncie, we get it. But it just seemed time after time after time after time, they just came up with the big hit in the big spot. And if you're a Red Sox fan, I'm sure you felt confident knowing that this ride, this wave that they had just been on, not only just these last three weeks, but the whole year, that they weren't going to let up. You know, you almost look at a streak like that when they get all these big hits and big spots that you think, oh, at some point this is going to run out. It just can't go on forever. And it just seemed to continue and continue and continue. And I'm sure as a Red Sox fan, you want to bottle that sucker up and carry that into next year. But of course... Next year is for next year, and you're certainly not going to worry about that. But when this Red Sox team, for all the resilience, for all of their professionalism, for all of their just magic, when you look at this year, you just look back to what happened Saturday night, and we're going to get to the Dodgers side because, of course, that plays an enormous part in all of this. But when you look at what happened Saturday night, considering they're down 4 nothing there, and you think to yourself, oh, geez, all the momentum's now is with the Dodgers. Puig hits that massive home run with the bat flip and then the spike glove of Eduardo Rodriguez. Talk about just two waves of emotions from one second to the next. And I'm sure at that point, maybe the Red Sox fan or the Red Sox weren't thinking like, oh, geez, you know, we're going to be in for a tough battle here, knowing that they got to scratch and claw just to try to get back in this game, considering the Dodgers now have all this momentum and Rich Hill was pitching phenomenal as well as Ed, you know as well as Rodriguez was up until that point but you would think that as the start of the seventh inning takes place and all like I said all the momentum is on your side you just got to get nine outs somehow some way by hook or crook and then what happens is is that when Hill gets a couple guys on and then now it's a thing where Dave Roberts comes out and he pulls Rich Hill and I totally understand that Hill had made a mention to Roberts that he was starting to run out of gas. He was starting to get tired. So he goes six and a third innings. He brings in uh, Ryan Madsen, who was a guy that they just got off the scrap heap right before the waiver trade deadline. And he performed in, I've always stat up until that point. I think he was in nine games in the month of September. And throughout this postseason, he was in nine games. So it was almost as if they were relying too much on this guy. And I get that he's a veteran and he's been on the World Series teams and he's 
pretty much done the job throughout his whole career. I mean, he's still pitching in the leagues. You know, he goes back to the Phillies in the mid-2000s. But why he relied on this guy at this point, A, and then B, taking out Hill. And I get that Hill had hinted to him that, listen, I don't know how much I have left. But you know what? Even if you are Rich Hill at that point, you know you got to somehow, someway fight through that inning to take your team home. And I get he doesn't want to play hero ball. And it's weird because you're teetering on the guys being honest and the guy feels as if he doesn't have that much left to the point where you trust your gut to say, oh, can I just have him go out there and get one more out? Or can I just have him go out there and just get this batter or just get through this inning, whatever it may be. I understand tough call. But somehow, someway, if you're Dave Roberts, and again, I want to save this for later, he's not going to be able to sleep all winter long based on that move. Because that move, in essence, killed any hopes for the Dodgers to win the World Series. But back to the Red Sox, we know that Mitch Moreland hits a three-run home run. Then Steve Pierce, who was a guy that they got during the, you know, during the season where right before, I believe, the trade deadline, and we know the dividends that he had paid off to the point where he's the World Series MVP. But here they are, Red Sox again, 4-3. You know they're not out of it. And not only does Pierce get the home run to tie the game, but then he gets the bases-clearing double to pretty much ice this game. And then last night, Kershaw goes out there, gives up the first inning, the two-run homer. And then even though they answer back with a home run of their own, but then Kershaw scuffling. Didn't pitch bad, but he had three bad pitches. That's what it boils down to. Because then later on, it's Betts, and then Martinez to get the home run, and you can pretty much turn your sets off there. But going back to the themes, the first theme was the clutch hitting by the Red Sox. That's what pretty much propelled them to win this World Series. So to me, that's storyline number one. Storyline number two is Cora, and every button he seemed to touch was perfect. I mean, I understand you could talk about a couple of things with him, you know, throughout the course of the series. Now, the 18-inning game, you can't get crazy about. I mean, he had to let Evaldi pitch. And you just see the way the teammates, they rallied around him, even after giving up the home run, patting him on the back. And, I mean, he was just unbelievable, Evaldi. Not only just in that game, in the whole postseason. And pretty much, he's a very underrated... Obviously, he's not going to be the MVP. But he was a guy that came up enormous for them in this postseason. Whether it was Game 3 at Yankee Stadium. Whether it was Game 3 down in Houston. Him coming in relief there in that game three and him just pitching in relief in the World Series. And it just seemed whatever Cora did, it was magical. And it's amazing to think that a first-time manager, first year with this team, and again, you don't win 108 games for nothing. And knowing that this organization, after everything that had happened pretty much since 2013, you know, the firing of John Farrell, this team having just bad postseason losses the last couple of years, that this was a very important year for this Red Sox team to get over the hump and at least get to a World Series considering how well they played all year. And that's a credit to the manager. He was stupendous. Everything he did was, it just turned to gold. And then finally, when you look at the big picture here, and what I mean by the big picture, and I'm going to get to the Dodgers, I know it's a situation where, and this is the third thing, by the way, when you get to this, you know, you get to this far of the season and you look at what the Dodgers did, did last year and then you look at what had taken place over the last couple of days, especially Saturday night, and 
I understand that the Red Sox probably would have won this World Series no matter what. We all know that even if the Dodgers would have won uh, one game, uh, one more game since game three, that this series is going back to Boston and who knows. The, the series probably could have been over in six. But to think that Roberts, a guy who doesn't have a contract now, and we all know that guys like Clayton Kershaw, who I'm going to tie him in in a second, when you get this close, especially off the heels of last year and that crazy World Series with the Astros, and knowing that this one decision could pretty much tell the tale of your tenure here with the Dodgers. He had a great tenure, three years, made it to the postseason three times, two World Series appearances, we get it. But this one is, I mean, it's not only going to make you scratch your head, but it's going to make you pull your hair out of your head. Because for him to take out Rich Hill at that moment, I and again, I said this before, if you're Rich Hill, you somehow, someway got to gut through it. I'm sorry. And on top of that, if you're Dave Roberts, you got to go to Pedro Baez there because he was your most effective reliever in this postseason. Jan, Kenley Jansen was running out of gas. I know he'd been a workhorse in years past, but as you could see, he was just losing it slowly but surely here. And Baez, he's been their mainstay throughout. So why didn't, you know, you needed to get this game. There was no way that even at 4 nothing. Knowing that anything, whether it would be, even if we understand it was a three-run homer and they still had a lead going into the eighth inning, but still, you know the momentum had changed. You know the shift went from the dugout on the third base side to the first base side. And why would you do that? Why would you not put your at least one of your best pitchers in there? And we understand Jansen and what he did. Right, we get that after the fact. But again, that's when the Red Sox are already back in the game. So now, for the Dodgers for their organization and now for Clayton Kershaw who's going to be a free agent and Kershaw I tell you we know how phenomenal he is we understand that he's been probably the best pitcher of this generation of the last 12 to 15 years because when you look at the generation before that whether it's Pedro Martinez Randy Johnson now Clayton Kershaw is the one that is carrying this torch and we know that he's had postseason success I mean we certainly don't have to look long and far to know that he's come up in big games for the Dodgers, whether it was game four against the Mets in 2015 when they were down two games to one. I mean, just all you got to do is just look at this postseason. Game five against the Brewers. Now, I understand the series was tied 2-2, but he still got him to a game six, and we all know they won in game seven. And then here in the postseason, we all know game one did not pitch well. And then here, I understand just a few mistakes, but you do not have a lot of margin for error in an elimination game to know that the other team who has had this magic carpet ride all year, that anytime you give them an inch, they're going to take a mile. And Kershaw is going to have this follow him until he has that Oral Hershiser-type dominant postseason. When he goes in there and he steamrolls everybody through the division series, through the championship series, and through the World Series. And even if yesterday, even if they lost one nothing, and he gave you eight innings, struck out nine, didn't walk anybody, one run, three hit, they listen, you tip your cap. But he didn't do that. And it's interesting because then on the flip side of that, when you look at a guy like David Price, Price is a guy that, and rightfully so, should have been slaughtered from pillar to post right before that game five against the Astros when he got the clincher in the league championship series. And since then, he's just been lights out. And I, 
I am happy for him. I'm not a Price fan by any stretch of imagination. I mean, he's nowhere near my team. But at the same time, we knew that this was a guy, when he came up and he came into the league in 2008, he was going to be a top-flight pitcher. And he has been for most of his career. You know, he's won a Cy Young. He's been a guy that has had very good numbers throughout his career. Not against the Yankees, of course, because the Yankee fan, they'll certainly stand up and say, uh-uh, that's not the case, and rightfully so. But we all know his back of the baseball card in the postseason has just been awful up until these last three games. I mean, he didn't win a start in a postseason until that aforementioned clincher down in Houston in game five. But the one thing about Price, and it's good to see that he was able to get the monkey off the back, and I get that people are going to say, oh, come on, Jay Reels. He won in a no-pressure situation in game five in Houston, and he won in a no-pressure game five last night. But you know what? If he would have lost both of those games, everybody would have been killing him. So let's just be fair about that. And you know what? And he pitched phenomenal. You know, it wasn't, he, he didn't get six run, uh, six innings, you know, three runs, six hits, two walks and five strikeouts. You know, they weren't just, just good enough. No, they were great performances. And remember, he pitched an inning in relief the night before. And we get that, hey, well, he's, come on, he's an athlete, he should be able to do that. Well, we understand. Now, when you're this late in the game, you're pretty much going on adrenaline. You know you're dead tired physically, mentally. So for him to get that inning pitched and then to go out and pitch seven innings, I mean, what could you say? And just an all-around team effort from this Boston Red Sox team that, I and I, this is the one question you got to ask. And when I get JD on, I'm sure I'm going to tip my hand here because whenever I get him on, here's the question. If we went back to that long night in Boston... Don't remember the date off the top of my head, but the Yankees won game three of the American League Championship Series in 2004. They won 19-8, to up three games to none. If I would have told the Red Sox fan that night that 14 years later, not only are you going to win four World Series, but you're going to go ahead with a historic comeback to win the next four against the Yankees, then sweep the St. Louis... And then going to win three more World Series after that, you probably would have thought that I just landed from another planet. Either that or I was smoking the most potent drug on the face of this earth. But you know what? That's a fact. And it's amazing to think that once they broke that curse back then, and I understand that's not to be brought up ever again because we all know that was slayed 14 years ago, but the success that they've had ever since, huh, I only wish my baseball team could go through that. Just, I just want to win one. And granted, I've seen one in 86, and that's 32 years ago. No, only 32 years. Nah, it's not that long ago. But I just, want, I just want to see my baseball team win one more time before I leave the face of this earth. And granted, the Red Sox fan, they, they, generations hadn't seen their team won. And now they won four times. But kudos to them. Much props. And now I have a question for the Yankee fan. Because as people listen to me and they know, that every time, or at least every October, or on the very, very, very seldom occasion that the Yankees don't make it to October, if you follow me on Facebook or Twitter, I always come out with the post. Another winter that I can sleep in peace. All right, well, obviously I didn't say that on the show. I'm saying it now, but not really. But my point is, is that if I feel that way toward the Yankees, how does the Yankee fan feel like that toward the Red Sox? And knowing... 
just to add insult to injury, times two, knowing that they won a World Series and of course they went through the Yankees to get there, number one. Number two is that here you hear the crowd, the Red Sox fans that were in the building after the last out was made, chanting Yankees suck, which, hey, listen, as a Mets fan, I got a kick out of it. I'm thinking to myself, come on, why are they worrying about the Yankees right now? Because that, that's... The, Please, as a Mets fan, that's the last thing I'm worried about. Because if the Mets won a World Series next year or whatever it was, I, I wouldn't even, please, I would nowhere near be thinking about that. And I get that maybe some Yankee fans are, yeah, right, Jay Reels, yeah, please. That's probably the first thing you say. Why would I even think about the Yankees? Why? If my team was able to raise that trophy over their heads and whomever the MVP would be, yeah, the, the first thing I want to think about is the Yankees? No. You got to be off your rocker. So that's number one. And then the other thing is, is that now in the locker room, as the champagne is flowing and it's sprayed everywhere, they crank out the boombox, and we all know what happened after Game 2 when the Yankees beat the Red Sox where Aaron Judge allegedly played New York, New York, strolling past the Red Sox clubhouse, and now here they are in Los Angeles after the coronation with the boombox, and they're singing, start spreading the news. Probably the only song I could sing, but anyway... As a Yankee fan, I'm sure you're not sick to your stomach. I'm sure you're ready to just start the season tomorrow. (laughs) And I'm sure it doesn't sit well with Brian Cashman as much as he could say, ah, well, you know what, congratulations to them and take the high road, I get that. But it makes you think and wonder, it's not going to be Yankees-Red Sox of 78, and it's certainly not going to be Yankees-Red Sox of 0304. But you kind of wonder if that match has been lit. And since it was lit by Aaron Judge and the bomb went off last night, that all the ashes are now... flooded throughout the tri-state area and especially in the five boroughs and including down there on 161st street and river avenue you kind of wonder what kind of effect that's going to have going into next year and as a yankee fan i'm sorry i know i'd be tossing and turning from now until opening day next year and granted that there are red Sox fans a smattering here down in new york so you will you know, feel the somewhat after effects of it. But the reason why I say, me personally, another winter I can sleep in peace because I don't have to see the Yankee hat. I don't have to hear the Yankee fan. I don't have to hear all that. And granted that Brett, you know, Boston is 200 miles up the pike. But the bottom line is, is that they're going to have to see the highlights. They're going to have to hear from the few Red Sox fans out there. They're going to have to relive everything that has happened this postseason anytime they turn on the MLB Network or anything on SportsCenter when they do the year reviews, all that. And I'm sure it's going to just gnaw at them. So you know what, Yankee fans? Feel my pain. And with that said, let's segue real quick to the team in Flushing because we all know that they're probably a day or so away from announcing their new GM. The GM is going to be an agent. I mean, only the Mets could do this, but Brody Van... Wagenen, who is the agent for four Met players. That's right, four. Joanna Cespedes, Noah Syndergaard, Jacob DeGrom, that's right, and Todd Frazier. How he's going to get the job over Heim Bloom, who is a senior VP down in the Tampa Bay Rays organization, and then Doug Melvin, who was also in the mix until he took his name out of the GM sweepstakes last week. Now, I believe probably tomorrow they're going to announce it. And it is, I, I would believe this would be historic because when is an agent or, I mean, a current agent, not even a former agent, a current agent is actually going to be the guy who's going to overlook all the baseball operations 
for a Major League Baseball team. And I understand that raises red flags with the MLB, especially with the Players Association. I know Tony Clark, who's the uh, executive director, he had made some comments thinking that you know, a number of players who are concerned that a former agent could have information that would you know, affect future negotiations, that that could actually play into the mix. And I could see why. Because now, here it is, you have a guy who four of his clients are on a team that he actually oversees. And what is he going to do? Is he going to max out these players? Or is he going to say, well, no, hey, we got to cut back? Is, what, what's going to happen here? You know, it's almost as if He's going to be the guy that's going to run this ship, but is he going to run this into the ground? Or is it going to be smooth sailing knowing that he's going to have this relationship with the player to say, you know what, hey, this is what we're trying to do. We understand we're going to try to get you as much as possible, but there are some budget constraints. And granted that, you know, New York, I hate to say this, that the Mets almost play like they're a small market team as far as their budget is concerned. And I understand their budget's in the mid-140s, so it's not as if they're a pittance like the Marlins or a team like that, but still. We don't know or even trust the owners to sign off on any of these big deals that are going to hopefully take place if the Mets are trying to get back to some sort of relevancy, not only just in this town, but also in baseball. And if you ask me, the safe bet would have been Melvin. I get it. 66 years old. I don't know if, I don't want to say health had a factor. I certainly don't know that. But again, they've been down that road with Sandy. I'm sure they wanted to go a little bit younger and try to implement a little bit more of the analytics of the game, as much as you know I detest that, but that's another story. But when I look at the other two candidates here, in this case, Van Wagenen and also Bloom, Bloom was a much younger guy, he's 35 years old, where Van Wagenen's 44. Bloom, a lot of people, from what you've heard or read or seen with some of these reports, that he was too analytic-driven, and we all know Tampa... There's a team that doesn't have a huge payroll and everything has to be with scouting and looking, I'm sure, at the international markets for players and at the same time, factor in the analytics. We get all that. But the one thing, I guess that they looked in Brody, Van Wagenen, and I'm talking about the Met Brass, is that they saw a guy that has good relationships with the players, I'm sure could also try to look ahead and work with what they have as far as their whatever their ceiling is for their payroll is concerned. And I don't know if that automatically means that, hey, he could, well, I don't even know who else is on his roster that he could try to lure to come to New York. I mean, I'd have to look it up. I mean, he's with CAA, Creative Artist Agency. So there are a lot of baseball players, a lot of guys that I'm sure are under the CAA umbrella. But that's where things could get kind of murky when it comes to getting these other players because the players the players that are looking for the big payday and just to give you an example when it's time for Noah Syndergaard to get his money and even more so Jacob DeGrom because Cespedes here he's got his money and after it's his contract is up that's going to be the end of Cespedes as a Met so we're just talking about those two guys and Frazier's going to be gone after next year anyway so here we are we have Noah and Jacob and they're going to command big money and rightfully so especially if they continue their productivity over the course of the next couple of years or does Brody Van Wagenen go to ownership and say, hey, listen, we see the year Jacob had. Can we just tear up his remaining two years and just tack on five years at whatever million? And that would be the right thing to do, correct? 
But what does that mean for the other guy that wants to get paid 200 some odd million, 300 some odd million, that a guy that has star value and star quality, oh, well, our payroll is only at this much. And even though I have good relationships with the players, but I can't get them that kind of money. The players are going to look at him and be like, yo, you're out of here. Fired. Goodbye. So he's going to wear these two hats as an agent and then also as a GM. And at the same time, try to lure some other players here to New York that, as we all know, when Sandy was here, had the bargain basement bins and went through the Kmarts and the five and dime stores for players. So, right. So when we're finally trying to go to Tiffany's and Birdolf Goodman's and Neiman Marcus, players are going to look at Van Wagen and say, wait a minute, you're my agent. You're supposed to get me all this money, but now you can't because you're a GM. Ah, goodbye. That's going to be the fascinating thing. And I kind of hate to put it that way because I actually would rather have Bloom, who's more analytic driven, who's been on a franchise that obviously has made some strides. I mean, look at what they, they Tampa Bay Rays won 90 games last year. And I understand you could say, well, they're probably not going to do that again next year and the years to come. Okay, that could be the argument because they are the Tampa Bay Rays. But considering the culture that he's come from, I almost want to trust him than I would Van Wagenen. But then again, we have to give this guy a shot because we don't know how this is going to shake down. So, right, as much as the Med fan could be quick to judge, to say, oh, this is not going to work, we don't know that. But for all the things that I mentioned before about him wearing those two hats and how that's going to play out and bringing people here and extending deals for current players that he has his clients, I mean, that's where it gets murky. And that's what you don't like because it almost, that to me, that just has bad news written all over it. So, right, so what happens if Van Wagen and they try to strike a deal with the Grom, and the Grom wants to be a Met, that goes, goes, goes without saying. But at the same time, what happens? As he's a free agent the year after next, and a new deal hasn't been made, and the Grom has, I'm not going to say he's going to have the two kill years like he's had this year, but let's just say for argument's sake, he has all-star years within the top five of Cy Young voting. If he wins another Cy Young, oh, heavens forbid, that would also probably have him go elsewhere. Because at that point, then the Mets are going to have to back up the truck, and deservedly so, but it's the Mets. It's Jeff Wolpon. I tell you. So, right. So, I understand the Yankee fan can look at me and say, ah, oh, Jay Reels, you know, you know, ragging on the Yankees and New York, New York. Hey, listen, I'm just reporting it. I mean, it's not as if I went to their clubhouse and put on New York, New York, and I'm here saying all these things. I'm going based on what I've seen, and, but my point is, is that right? As much as you want to think I'm picking on the Yankees, I kill my team just as much. And if you haven't heard any of my other previous podcasts, then go back and listen to the archives because it's there. But this is the Mets, and we'll see. It's going to be interesting to see how that press conference goes. I'm sure the writers, they're going to attack him. They're going to say, wearing these two hats, what's going to happen? Is he going to, you know, what's the payroll going to be like? Is Jeff going to chime in? What's going to happen? And we understand it's it's a sales job. We get it. It's pomp and circumstance. The carving board's going to be out for the staff. You're going to have the shrimp cocktail and the, you know, whatever it is that they're going to serve at these things. But at the same time, right, is it going to be a bill of goods? Or is he actually going to stick to, this, stick to the program to get this team back on the right track? Because this fan base, to think three years ago was in a World Series and now that felt like 50 years ago. So we'll see how that unfolds. In the days to come. All right, now we'll turn our attention to the NFL. And let's just put an epitaph on the New York Giants right now. And we all know that this season pretty much spiraled out of control weeks ago. We get that. But now at 1-7, and seven, 
0-4 at home after yesterday's loss to the Redskins. We could certainly put them out the pasture. And again, between now and the end of the year, we're certainly going to discuss some of these giant games. Who knows? Uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot that's going to happen here maybe in the next 24 hours because the trade deadline takes place by 4 p.m. And we all know the Giants made a couple trades last week in sending Eli Apple to New Orleans, who had an awful day yesterday, but although they did win against the Vikings. They sent him to New Orleans packing as well as Snacks Harrison last week to Detroit. And again, you weren't going to get a ton back. I understand people could say, oh, but wait a minute. Eli Apple was actually playing better this year. We could have gotten a higher pick. And Snacks, come on, this guy was an old pro two years ago. But we all know that the Giants knew that these guys, and obviously with the issues they had with Apple last year, and then Snacks, although played a little bit better this year, but last year certainly was not the old pro that he was in 2016. But the Giants are looking to jettison players that know aren't going to be part of this Regime, And we all know that those two players prior to the Dave Gettleman era were products of Jerry Reese. And now Gettleman and company are looking forward to see who's next and what's next for this organization that is certainly fallen on not just hard times, but they're certainly falling on times of the late 60s into the 70s Giants. And that's right. For those who remember the Giants back then where they couldn't even sniff the postseason, let alone in winning season. And if you're the Giants, listen, we could go through the game and break it down, so on and so forth, but for what? I mean, really. You know, Eli, although with, you know having 316 yards, but certainly didn't have a good game. You know, missed opportunities, dropped balls. I know Odo Beckham Jr. made a couple of great catches. Good for him for his highlight reel, big whoop. And I know there were some comments I just heard a few minutes ago. There were some comments that were made by both Janoris Jenkins and Odo Beckham Jr., which I wish I would have had a chance to look at before I recorded this, but it's all for what? I'm sure people right now, whatever Odell says, I understand it's going to be news to the media, but really with him, it's just in one ear out the other. I mean, it really is. And Janoris Jenkins, please, what has he done since he's been here? He's done nothing. He is not, and who, I wouldn't be surprised if he gets shipped out of here by 4 p.m. tomorrow. The Giants are just an absolute mess. And I never would have thought that you know, even after them not drafting a quarterback, and we all know that's going to be the controversy from here on out until both guys are long retired between Saquon Barkley and Sam Darnold. And not to say Darnold's been any better, but here it is. Eli, who's really been inconsistent this year, has had moments, but at the same time has certainly not shown any production near his contemporaries. And when people are going to look at, you know, whether it's Ben Roethlisberger or Phillip Rivers, he falls third in that right now. And with the way the Giants are constructed, knowing that they're probably headed for another 3-13 and 13 or 4-12 and 12 year, you're certainly looking at 2019 right now. That's all there is to it. Uh, there, isn't, there isn't anything else to say. I mean, what could you say about this team? And I thought that this team was going to be with the new coach, offensive-minded, and we know Sherman, what he did last year in Minnesota, Case Keenum, you think, wow, he has Eli, he has uh, a new minted, fresh first-round pick in Saquon Barkley. We know about Odell. We know about Evan Ingram. We know about Sterling Shepard that this team would have scored 30 points in their sleep. Meanwhile, they've only scored 30 points once. And against a Redskin team, I get it that they gave up a zillion sacks yesterday. What was that? I think six or seven yesterday in the game. And even though Eli still threw for 316, a lot of that was a couple of deep balls that he threw and obviously late when they were down 20 to six. But this team, I mean, you can't even wrap your head that how bad, I mean, they're worse than the Jets. And that's not to knock the Jets by any stretch of imagination. But here the Jets, we all understand they have younger talent. The Giants a little bit more veteran-laden team. Or veteran-laden, excuse me, team. But still, 
this giant team should at least be in the mix for the NFC East. And now they are just wallowing at the bottom. Their season is kaput. Their season is done. And I know that's tough to swallow with eight more games to go on this calendar. And who knows what's going to happen. Eli's could be, could be next. And I'm not going to say he's going to be gone. We understand everything with Jacksonville and the way they performed and how Eli, the connection with Tom Coughlin, I don't think a trade's going to be made. He, obviously, he has a no-trade clause, so it's not as if he's if the Giants were to send him packing, they have to get his approval. And with the situation, whether it's with that, who knows if the coach survives this. I'm sure they're going to give him another shot. I, I would think they would, but who knows? You know, the Maris got to look long and hard in the mirror to say, do we screw up here with the coach? Because the offense, and let's face it, the Redskins, they're not a, a top-notch defense. Let's not get that twisted. And granted that the offensive line for the Giants, Swiss cheese, we understand. Solder's been a disaster. I mean, we could, uh, please. This is, it just doesn't fall on Eli. It doesn't fall on any, it falls on everybody. But this team should put up more than 13 points against the Redskins. I mean, this is the Redskins. And they're at home. And for all the wondrous talent that this offense has, I mean, they've they've done nothing. They've had you know they've had some hope, a glimmer of hopes. They've had some glimpses. I mean, we get that, but still, I mean, it's been an abomination. No matter how you slice it, and I'm sure the Giant fan right now they're looking at Justin Herbert, the kid from Oregon, who may come out as a quarterback. And I know I'm sure they want to tank the season, but, but I got news for you: the schedule gets easier after this. And as Crazy as this may sound, I'm not saying they're going to win six games or go six and ten, but are they going to be as bad as Arizona? Are they going to be as bad as Buffalo? Are they going to be as bad as San Francisco? Well, yeah, they're in the conversation, but there's still eight more games to go. So even if the Giants, let's just say for argument's sake, they can have a four and twelve year. Let's say they go three and five the next eight. Where do you see Arizona winning another game? And again, I don't have the schedule in front of me, but Arizona is just as bad, if not worse. Same with San Francisco. Buffalo, I believe, has two wins, but they, and they play New England tonight. You think they're going to come out there with a victory? No. So right, right now, at worst, they could be fourth overall. And that's not including the Browns, who lost another game, and their coaches got fired this morning in Hugh Jackson. So, Giant fans, I don't know. As much as you want to say, oh, tank the season, whatever, you may end up being fifth, sixth, and you may have to trade up to get that quarterback. Because as we all know, if the Giants are to draft high like they did last year. And if they don't have their sights set on a quarterback, then why even run the franchise, Dave Gelderman? Why? All right, so that's it with the Giants. Enough of that, because obviously I got to get through the league and some other stuff. And with the Jets, oh, what could you say about the performance yesterday? You know, Trubisky's running around as if he's, you know, Cam Newton. Obviously, they got some big plays from Tariq Cohen. Jets, their offense, the offense is stuck in mud. And part of it is they don't have the personnel. You know, Bilal Powell's on IR for the rest of the year. So they got to, you know, Trenton Cannon is your running back. And, you know, the receiver core obviously is not strong. And we understand they got guys, but, there's you know, they're still young. You know, the Chris Herndons of the world. And, you know, Jermaine Curse. I mean, you know, he's, a, he's, a, he's an NFL receiver, but he's not a one. He's not even a 1A or even a 2. You know, he's more of a slot, you know, third receiver. So when you look at this team, as much as you want to get upset and throw your TV through the remote and, oh, no Khalil Mack was in this game, so we had a shot and, geez, you know, we could have gotten back to 500 and we go down to Miami next week and Miami's been flailing as well and we could, you know, not only that, but we own from earlier this year. 
But when you have a team that does not have all the parts on offense and has a quarterback that's, no pun intended, is still green, you're not going to make those leaps and bounds. You know, it's not as if you're going to have a guy like, you know, just I, I hate to throw him because everybody's going to hold oh, a steal a homer with the pom-poms. But, you know, when Ben Roethlisberger, when he first played with Pittsburgh in 20, you know, 2004, you know, he had Plexico Burris, Heinz Ward, Jerome Bettis. He had veterans on the team. Where are those guys on the Jets? And Graham, even though he played well, Roethlisberger, but those guys carried him. You know, Bettis was able to get those big yards on the ground. Hines was able to make a big third down catch. Plexico was a big target. Because I'm sure you can look back at the numbers, and although Roethlisberger had a very successful, he won his first 13 games as a starter, but at the same time, you know, it wasn't as if he was lighting up the scoreboard the way he does now. And when you have half of that talent on a team that's still looking to find their identity, it's almost impossible. And I understand Bowles, he's been a problem too. You know, Bowles, I get the attitude still. Hey, we fought hard. We played tough. Uh, you know, when are you going to score some points? When are you going to make some plays? You know, the defense hasn't made the plays that they did earlier this year as far as takeovers are concerned or you know, turnovers, takeaways. You know, you haven't seen that from the Jet defense, from their New Jack City secondary or, you know, any of the guys that play uh, on the line or, you know, where's Leonard Williams? You know, Avery Williamson, I know, has made some contributions, but in the last couple of weeks, you know, where's the big defensive play been? You know, you had that miscommunication play, wherever that was, Tariq Cohen up you know, on the sideline, whatever it was, 70 yards, and it was no, not a white jersey to be found. And now you're, you're at the brink where you're three and five, you're on pace to go six and 10, which is actually a game better than last year, but that's not the point. You want to be in these games. You don't want to trail in these games and then make it look close and then only to lose in the end. Because that's not progress. And I understand you can't be in every game. I get that. Okay? But when you look at a Bear team, that although talent-wise, they're probably better than the Jets. Let's face it. Even with Khalil Mack out of the lineup. But you could go toe-to-toe with that team. You know, the week before the Vikings, you were in the game in the third quarter. And yeah, I understand you are in the game with the Bears too. But at the same time, you know, the Vikings, they made it to an NFC Championship game last year. Bears haven't done anything in years. So that's a team that you could actually play on in the field. But yesterday, as you saw, whether it was Trubisky making plays with his legs or with his arm, you know, and the defense didn't really do too much either, even without Mack in the lineup. So the Jets should have been in that game a lot closer than it was. Because even when it was 17-10, you still kind of felt that we're not going to win this game. And as you saw, they didn't win the game. And now they have Miami and then Buffalo these next two weeks. So even though you want to hang your hat and say, well, hey, Maybe somehow, some way. And it's, uh, I understand it's about respectability and it's about the progress because I've been saying that for weeks on end. But now that they, they have to go out there and perform. And this is a big game. I think this coming week right now, I understand it's on the road. It's in Miami, but Miami's not a good team. And that's a, another team that the Jets can play well against. And how I look at it is, is that this is a, an enormous game for Bulls. Because if they go down there and they lay an egg, not an egg like 24-10 like yesterday, but... You know, just let's say bad decisions, clock management, which is typical of him. But let's say they go down there and the and the Dolphins win thirty to ten. That's certainly not going to bode well for him in his future. Here, you have to be in this game from start to finish. You cannot go down there and lay an egg if you're Todd Bowles. So that's it with the Jets. I mean, I, there's nothing more else to add about that. You know, again, to break down certain plays of the game and 
you know, bowls. Uh, yeah, I mean, please. You know, I just want to move on to other things and let's you know go through around the league here. And let's do that right now with the Thursday night game last week with the Texans and Dolphins is just a case in point. Dolphins were pathetic. Texans have now have a new lease on life. Here it is, 42-23. I know everybody's going to jump on that Deshaun Watson bandwagon once again. And yeah, listen, you know, give them credit. I know Watson hasn't been great. I mean, he was great that night. I mean, obviously he threw for five touchdowns, so of course you're going to look at that. But overall, his year, he has not been lights out. But with the Dolphins, as I said, when you have Brock Osweiler as a quarterback there, and if you're the Jets, you've got to do something to win this game or at least be in this game in the fourth quarter within a score. And I'm not talking about you know 24-17. I want that to be 21-20. You know, a 23-21. It's Brock Osweiler, people. But anyway, so Texans are off and running 5-3, and three, and now they're actually putting themselves a little distance in that AFC South because the London game yesterday was the Jacksonville Jaguars against the Philadelphia Eagles, and there was some news prior to that where a few names, few players from the Jaguars were out, and they were actually detained because they didn't pay a bill. And the word was that there was actually a $40,000 bill. Now, I guess that's in pounds. A $40,000 bill from a night out that they were ready to walk out on and they thought that it was actually going to be paid for. I mean, what? Are the, I mean, come on, guys. You know, you're not in the States. You, I mean, unless they felt that they had a connection to the, whatever the place that it was. But, I mean, please, geez, come on, guys. So you had that hanging over them. And this team, I'll say this quick about Jacksonville. We probably should have seen this coming considering the run that they had in the postseason and they were that close to winning an AFC championship and then going to a Super Bowl. But we should have known that this team was still relatively young. We know you can't trust a quarterback. And for them to go into the season the way they did, and they came out firing. Went against the Giants opening day. They blasted New England week two, and you're thinking to yourself, wow, you know, Jacksonville is going to be a serious threat in this AFC. And since then, they've lost, get this, they have lost five of six games. So to me, they're frauds. And for all the talk, Jalen Ramsey... And I don't know how he did in this game. I mean, I'd have to go through the stats. I mean, Bortles actually wasn't bad, but you know, obviously they did not perform well. Philadelphia and Wentz, you know, obviously had a very good game. Three touchdowns, 286 yards. But Jacksonville are a bunch of paper tigers. That's all there is to it. And they have a lot of growing up to it at the same time. When you had this off the field incident and Marone, and we know Marone's a good coach, but we all he's old school. So who knows how that's rubbing against these players right now? Because again, that Playoff run for last year was a long time ago, and their defense needs to get their act together because we all know that's the identity of their team. So Jacksonville loses, and when you have a AFC South where three weeks ago, or now five weeks ago, when you think about it, geez, that's how fast the season's going, where the Texans were kind of as one of the more disappointing teams, now they're 5-3 and three and like two games ahead in first place, which is hard to believe. Now, I would have never seen that coming by any stretch. Uh, Denver and KC... Casey keeps on rolling. Denver, who got up to out of the gate pretty strong, but since then has certainly have just faded. Another big game from Holmes, 300 yards, four touchdowns. What does he have, 26 now, the most in, nine, in a nine-game stretch, or what? I guess it's a nine-game stretch, right? He's had the eight and the one last year. So they've been uh, unbeaten at home. Uh, undefeated, seven and one for the Chiefs overall as they uh, continue to march on here in this NFL season. Crazy game in Cincinnati with the Bengals and Buccaneers to the point where Jameis Winston threw four interceptions and just bad picks all around. He gets pulled. They bring in Fitzmagic, and he almost pulls a rabbit out of his hat. 
The Bengals had a 27-9 lead in this game. They put Fitzgerald in, or Fitzpatrick, excuse me, and he comes down the field. He makes some plays. Deep ball to Deshaun Jackson. And the they were actually a two-point conversion away from tying the game, which they actually did. And then with less than a minute to go, they had the Bengals march down the field and kick a 44-yard field goal to win the game, which is big for them because the Bengals were certainly reeling with a couple of losses back-to-back, and they pulled out that game out of the fire, and it was a big game for them to win at home against the Buccaneers. The Carolina Panthers upend the Baltimore Ravens, and listen, this isn't to knock the Raven defense because they're going to have games like this, but 36 points on the road, Cam Newton, Efficient, not a ton of yards for the amount of attempts that he threw, but two touchdowns where Flacco was bad. You even had a Lamar Jackson sighting there late, I believe. As I uh, Let me see if I can scroll down and see. It looks like he threw his first touchdown pass of his career. It was four for five. That must have been a mop-up job. It had to be, just looking at this here. But the Panthers pretty much go away with this game, 36-21. to 21. Big game for the Panthers, and the Panthers trying to keep pace with the Saints, which we'll get to in a second, but... Ravens right now, who a lot of people thought that they were going to be a tough out in the AFC North, and they will. I mean, they're certainly going to be heard from. Uh, They are now 4-4. and They're actually a game and a half behind the Steelers and a game behind the Bengals right now. And Steelers and Ravens coming up this Sunday, and I'm going to get to that later on, which is going to be, that's going to be, I wouldn't be surprised that's going to be a game of yesteryear. I could see that just going to be tooth and nail, back and forth, scratch and claw. But I'm actually, and the game's in Baltimore too, so remember. Baltimore beat Pittsburgh early on a Sunday night, and now the rematch is just six days away, so definitely keep your eyes on that. Uh, Indy and Oakland, uh, what about the Raiders? Not much to say there. This is a cut-the-fat game. Andrew Luck, three touchdowns, 239 yards. Derek Carr, who had gotten a vote of confidence that he's going to be on this team, considering what happened early last week where Amari Cooper got sent to the Cowboys for a first-round pick. I thought it was too much. And I understand I had a couple of buddies of mine, including my one friend, Raphael, who's a huge Cowboy fan. He came out and said, well, we understand how number one picks work. They're boom or bust. And for the most part, they are. They're either going to pan out or they're not going to. So he felt the one was worth it. I see where he's coming from, but I would have started with a two. But we all know that the mastermind, quote unquote, of a one John Gruden trying to get all those picks and stockpile well, we'll see how that works in the long run, but right now the Raiders are nowhere to be found as the Colts uh, just trounce, especially in the fourth quarter. And it was weird because Luck had a great start to the game, then kind of had a, a rough third quarter. And then, of course, the Raiders had come back and uh, made it the game, but then in the fourth quarter it was just too much Indy as they got 21 fourth quarter points, and the Colts go on and win 42-28. to you have Arizona beating San Francisco 18-15. To me, the story of this game was after the two-point conversion to make it 18-15 that Larry Fitzgerald spiked the ball and he admitted to a conversation that he had with his youngest son, I believe, who wasn't going to support the team because the team was that bad. And can you fault him for that? But I understand your son. You're certainly not going to be happy about that. We all know that after every touchdown or after every score that Larry Fitzgerald, he just lobs the ball to the referee as if he's been there before and he spiked it and he even apologized for it. So it just goes to show you the class guy that he is. And they had uh, that situation for Arizona. As we all know, they're having a tough year. And they won two games. Earlier I mentioned they only had one win, but they did win yesterday against San Francisco uh, out in the desert. Uh, Seattle wins in Detroit, 28-14. to uh, Didn't see much of this, but uh, from the looks of it here, Russell Wilson had a good game. Uh, only had uh, 17 attempts, but uh, threw for 248 yards, three touchdowns. He had a good ground game, 176 yards total, 42 
carries for the team, including Chris Carson, who had a, a big game on the ground for him. What do you have? Over 100 yards for sure. As I uh, pull up here, 105. He also had a touchdown. And much respect, I thought the Seattle was going to have a step back here. They're four and three. That's not to say the season could go south on them. They're not going to win a division. But they're certainly hanging around. I thought they were going to take a step back considering everything that happened to their defense and especially before Earl Thomas was going to be lost for the season, how their defense was certainly not going to be anywhere near what they once were. But here they are at four and three, certainly in the wild card mix uh, in the NFC. Uh, also, let's get to the uh, two big games. Uh, well, one, uh, let's just kind of trim this game out of here. The S- Saints winning in Minnesota 30-20. to Saints continue to march on, continue to have just a magical season. And to think, they lost their first game of the year. And uh, I know vividly because I picked them in a knockout pool. Remember, they gave a 48 to the Buccaneers. 4-8. And here they are now. With six straight wins since then. Kind of like last year. Remember they went 0-2 last year and then they won eight straight before. They lost to, of all teams, the Los Angeles Rams who they face next week. I want to get to that game with Green Bay. But that's the marquee matchup next week. I mean, that's the one everybody's going to certainly turn their attention to. But uh, Breeze, just a pedestrian game for him. Uh, only 120 yards. But still, the Saints made plays and certainly had uh, a game. And this was the Sunday night game. And I know a lot of people want to look at it as the revenge game for last year for the Minneapolis Miracle, but please, you know, when you talk about a postseason game to a regular season game, I mean, you don't even bother. I mean, why even bring that up? Why even discuss it? But I understand maybe to the Saint fan and to the organization for to a certain extent want to erase that as much as they can, but the only way they're going to erase that is if they go back into that building this year, which chances are they won't, and win a playoff game. But the Saints uh, certainly... Uh, did you know they did enough? That's all you could say. You know that's all you could say. They did enough, and even with thirty to twenty, because you know just looking at it here, you know the printing of the game was back and forth until the third quarter when uh, they got a big pick six there from PJ Williams to extend the lead twenty seven thirteen. They didn't really do much offensively, but that's the one thing about the Saints. Not that they have a defense you could trust, but they certainly have a defense that's a lot better than the Saints defense of the, the defenses of the past. So when you look at it from that regard. They certainly have a lot more balance now than they did in the heyday of Breeze when he had to put up, it seemed, you know, 450 yards and five touchdowns every week. And then the other game was Green Bay and the Rams. And this was a game there. Green Bay actually, you know, early on you're thinking at 10 nothing that, wow, this could be a game where it's going to be tooth and nail down to the end, which it was. But maybe a big play in that game was when the punt, that went deep in their zone, that ended up, you know, ended up being costly, where it was, you know, they ended up getting a safety out of that, and then they got the ball back, and then they scored a touchdown to make it 10-8. to eight. To me, that was a turning point, because the Rams in the first half had punted five times. Five, or I believe six times, now that I think about it. And they only had punted 15 times all year leading up to that first half. So here they are, they have all the momentum on their side, and then what happens is, is that they go ahead, and it was late in the first half that they got these points, the Rams. So that got them in the game. Packers were pretty much in control, but then the Rams took over there in the third quarter. They had a 23-13 to 13 lead. Packers come fighting back. Actually then take the lead now late with a touchdown there or midway through the fourth quarter where it's now 27-23. to 23. And then the Rams get that touchdown late where they're up by two with about, what was it, a minute 20 to go? Let me just see how much that was. No, I think it was actually a little bit more time than that on the clock for the 
Packers. But uh, be that as it may, here we go, Rams, as I get the uh, box score up here. The killer there was the fumble. Oh, they kicked the field goal right at 2.05 to go. That's what it was. So they kicked the field goal. I said the touchdown. They actually had the touchdown to make it 27-26. I got confused with the girly touchdown earlier in the game. So to retrace my steps, the Packers down 23-20 and then 26-20 with the field goal by Zerline early in the fourth quarter. They got a big touchdown there from Marquez Valdez-Scanning who was wide open down the sideline, 40-yard touchdown pass with uh, about eight minutes to go. And then Zerline kicks that field goal with two minutes to go. And you're thinking to yourself, all right, let's see the Aaron Rodgers magic. What happens? Ty Montgomery fumbles the ball in the kickoff. And there's your game. And that would have been fascinating to see what Rodgers could have done against that defense because as we know, the magic of Rodgers in these moments certainly always seemed to flourish, always seemed to come up in these big moments. But we weren't, uh, you know, weren't able to see that. And the Rams still undefeated here in the season. And now you have the mega matchup next week. 8-0 Rams versus 6-1 Saints down in New Orleans, which could turn out to be one of the games of the year. And why not? And when you look at the Rams' schedule here, now that they're halfway through their schedule, and the rest of the league will be done with the first half of the schedule after next week, because remember, they're going into week nine. So once that's completed, we'll be halfway through the NFL season already, which is, I mean, geez, it just flies. If looking past that same game, I understand you can't look past it. But they have Seahawks at home, followed by the Chiefs. So that's going to be the other game. And the game's in Mexico. So that's something just to keep in mind. Pretty much the only game on the schedule that you look at here, besides the Saints, will be the Chiefs. And maybe, I'll just say maybe, the Eagles. And that's going to be a Sunday night game later in the year. And that's in L.A. All right, you want to look at the Lions and the Bears. They play them back-to-back. Maybe the Bears if it's a cold day. I, I don't trust the Bears or Trubisky. But listen, if, you, if everybody's thinking this team's going to go undefeated, they still have three big games they got to play. And as we all know, they could trip up on the road in a cold weather site. I think if they're 14-0 after that Eagle game, they have they. I mean, please, they go to Arizona and they play San Francisco the last game. But you still got six more games to go to get there. So I don't think they're going to have, excuse me, anywhere remotely close to a an undefeated season. But again, that's going to be a lot of the talk because we all know people are prisoners of the moment. They got to talk about, hey, can this team go 16-0? Hey, can they go undefeated? Hey, can they run the table? No, let's pump the brakes on that because obviously they have a, an enormous matchup this week and that's going to be for the one seed this year. That's going to be it. So certainly keep that in mind as we move forward. And then the last game, Steelers win. They had a slow start on their offense. I don't know what was going on there. They certainly just couldn't get jump-started there. Remember, they came back from a bye so they had uh, that to work with. But as far as the uh, Steelers, then they were able to get it going. Antonio Brown down the sideline, down 6 nothing, And then, which was a big play on a 4th and 2 at the 7-yard line. Instead of going for the field goal there right before the half, what did they do? They pass. Juju Smith-Schuster gets a big catch there. And then the next play into the end zone with Antonio Brown. I thought that was very aggressive of Tomlin. And, I, and it actually said a lot for this reason. The Browns have been very feisty, and they've been it's the team that's been hanging in all year. And for them to get that touchdown, you figure 10 6, eh, you know, whatever. All right, fine, no, no, no big deal. But at 14 6, not that that changed the whole complexity of the game because, as we know, uh, it was actually close 
it was 16-12 at one point until they missed the extra point, and then the Steelers pretty much took off from there in the fourth quarter. But that play to Juju at fourth down, not only extended the drive, but they were able to get in the end zone after that as opposed to kicking the field goal. And the Steelers go on. James Conner had a big game on the ground and had a big game overall. Ben was Ben. Uh, the defense actually was was very good for them. But again, it's the Browns. Can't get crazy uh, as I pull up their numbers here. But the Steelers right now at 4-2-1, and one, leading the division, and they have an enormous game. I mean, to me, this is their season. And I get I spoke as a fan a few weeks ago after they lost to the Ravens and they were 1-2-1. and one. And I said, oh, the season's over, whatever. Well, there's still plenty of season to be played here. But this game is going to say a lot, not only about this season, but about this team. Because I know that they were embarrassed in that second half where they didn't score any points. The Ravens, although they didn't really do much on offense in that second half either, but they were able to get four field goals. They did the job. The Ravens are now reeling here. They've had two back-to-back losses. One, the, the rough one was the week before when they lost to the Saints on that missed extra point at the end of the game. But then they get embarrassed there in Carolina, and then now they got to go to Baltimore to play this game. This is, I mean, this is going to be like watching the 08 Ravens-Steelers type game. And the Steelers aren't as physical as the Ravens are. Let's face it, that, that identity on defense is not the same. They, can they play physical to the Steelers? Yes, but they certainly don't have that identity on defense. We all know this is all about their offense. And that's what it's going to be. We're going to see what's going to happen. And then lastly with the Steelers, before I move on, I would not be surprised if Le'Veon Bell shows up Wednesday, 6.30 a.m. to Pittsburgh offices or wherever, you know, their uh, training camp or their facilities, I should say, and says, I'm here, guys. Where do I sign? That's going to, I'm going on a limb and saying that. Tomorrow's a trade deadline. I know there were a lot of rumors about him being traded. That's why I didn't want to report right away, just in case if the Steelers had a deal in place where they were going to ship Le'Veon somewhere, which would not only upset him, but I'm sure that he would just be mentally shot for the rest of the year if he played elsewhere outside of Pittsburgh. But with that said, I have a feeling that he's just going to show up there early Wednesday, sign on the dotted line and be like, I'm ready for the last eight games of the season. Because as we all know, he's lost seven paychecks as it is. He cannot go into this season. And he's, I think he has until week 10 to report. Because then after that, he can't. He's done. So that means he's not going to earn a dime. And then he's going to go into this offseason as a free agent. And what is he going to get in return after a year being off? Uh, so anyway, I, I think that this saga will end. I don't have any ins. I, don't, I haven't read anything as far as. Le'Veon Bell's concerned, but because with the trading deadline, 4 p.m. tomorrow, and we all know it's an off day for NFL players on Tuesday, that come Wednesday, I could see him strolling up 6.30 in the morning, he's in the gym pumping, lifting weights, playbook, meetings, film room, etc. And again, because it's the Ravens too, I wonder if that's even extra motivation for him. That remains to be seen. But then again, if you've had eight weeks off, and the first thing you want to do is line up behind Ben Roethlisberger and look at that Raven defense, that may be the last thing you want to see, but who knows? We'll see how that uh, unfolds. But you have that game, which is going to be a big game. We talked about Rams-Saints this coming weekend, which obviously is going to be an enormous game in the NFL, let alone the NFC. And when you look at a week nine, which will get us through, as I said before, the halfway point of the year, we're looking at the Thursday night game, Oakland-San Francisco. You could definitely uh, turn in early for that one. And other than the two games I mentioned, you do not have a lot of big games. I mean, are you going to jump up and down Atlanta at Washington? I know Atlanta's trying to get back in the mix here, and Washington is certainly overachieved, but yeah, are you going to get crazy there? 
Well, Green Bay, New England. I love the commercial with Jordan. That was great because they, they had me hook, line, and sinker. I'm thinking, oh, geez, is he talking about LeBron? Sure enough, he was talking about Brady and Rodgers. I thought that was very clever. So you have the three big games. I think uh, if you look at it, it's Rams, Saints, one, Green Bay, New England, two, and then Pittsburgh, Baltimore. Those are your three big games. Other than that, I mean, you got nothing. You won the night games, Tennessee, Dallas. Your buys this coming week are the Giants, who I'm sure they're going to be very happy to take this week off. And at the same time, you kind of wonder, what's going to happen? Is Odell Beckham going to be uh, on some boat somewhere? Well, who knows? That remains to be seen. But six teams, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, the Giants, Philadelphia, Arizona, and Jacksonville are your buys this week. And then uh, there's your NFL Week 9 with tonight, Week 8 closing, New England at Buffalo. As far as college is concerned, real quick, uh, Georgia-Florida, which was a big game. Georgia, who early on in the third quarter were down 14-13 to the Gators, but they certainly took over from there as they pretty much just dominated from that point on as they uh, trounced to a 36-17 win, which uh, doesn't keep them in the running, but they certainly ranked sixth overall in the country. Keeps them just right on the outside looking in as far as the top four in college football is concerned. And then you had Texas losing to Oklahoma State. Texas was sixth in the country, so they're certainly going to take a few steps back uh, with their loss. They were down 31-14, in fact, but uh, Oklahoma State hung on to a 38-35 victory, so Texas, I'm sure any championship aspirations certainly squandered there with their loss to the Cowboys. And then this week, you have two enormous games with Penn State and Michigan, and then the big one where Alabama's going to LSU. That's number one versus number four. So whoever's in that 5-6 right now, so if you're Georgia and you're Michigan, right now you're looking at that game to see who's going to fall out of it. Will Alabama take a few steps back and be knocked off their number one perch? And LSU will be anointed as the top team in the country? Now remember, the LSU has one loss, and they lost to Florida. But now with that, or does LSU lose again, get their second loss, and will probably not be heard over the rest of the year as far as being in that championship Mix is concerned. So again, those are two enormous games coming up here. And uh, obviously, we'll keep our eye on that as we uh, move along here in the J Reels podcast. Real quick with NBA and NHL stuff. Uh, NHL, uh, not really much to report. I mean, again, when you go through a long season and you're just about one month in, you know, of course, there's certain storylines, certain things that you're going to look at. But locally, yeah, obviously not going to get crazy. Rangers are going to have a long year, as we've said. The Devils have come back down to earth a little bit as far as their play is concerned. Uh, considering that you know they got off to a real good start, they were three and zero, and the Islanders have won their last two. But the Islanders are going to be one of those teams that are probably be right there in the mix as far as the wild card is concerned. But again, a lot of hockey to be played. Can't get all wrapped up and crazy about it. And uh, let's see, as I looked at the Devils' stats, yeah, Devils. I mean, they're still five two and one, but at the same time, you start off three and zero, and they've kind of leveled off since. And the Islanders, again, they had those two wins last week where they uh, were really over the weekend where they beat Philadelphia and uh, Carolina. And they uh, suffered a tough loss against uh, Florida at home when they lost in overtime. So uh, we'll see how the uh, NHL continues to move about here in the days and weeks to come. I think the Islanders and Rangers play soon. Let me just look at their schedule real quick. And I understand Islanders and Rangers games aren't what they once were 30, 40 years ago. And I understand I'm talking about a lifetime ago. Oh, as a matter of fact, I'm sorry. They're home and home against the Penguins. Why was I thinking the Rangers? I don't know. So early test for the Islanders here where uh, they go to Pittsburgh, 
tomorrow and then to the Barclays on Thursday. So uh, certainly a good litmus test for this Islander team early on to play the Penguins. So we'll certainly see how that unfolds. And uh, as far as the NBA is concerned, Golden State was in town over the weekend where they, the Knicks actually had played well and then all of a sudden Golden State just turned the switch on and blew their doors off. And then yesterday, with the Nets making a valiant comeback but falling short, 120 to 114. To me, the storyline of this NBA season early on, and we understand there have been some rule changes, we get that, but these scores have just been straight out of the Denver Nuggets, Doug Moe, Alex English days. You're seeing final scores. I mean, even the, you know, you look at the game yesterday, 120 to 114. I mean, we understand Golden State could put up 120 in his sleep, we get that, but, you know, 128, 100 against the Knicks. You know, they've been involved in some just some crazy games this year. They had that game the other day. It was against the uh, Wizards. Four quarters, no overtimes, 144-122. I mean, these inflated numbers. And we understand it's the threes. And Steph Curry has the record now. What has he hit? Uh, seven games where he's had at least five three-pointers in these games. So he's certainly back to his MVP form. But uh, you've had all these games, whether they're in overtime, you know, 143-142, 131-113. The, you know, Detroit beating Philly, 133-132. You look at these scores and you're thinking to yourself, well, this isn't your daddy's NBA anymore. Remember all those Nick Pacer, Nick Heat, Nick Bulls, you know, 78-74 games? <laughs> and I understand that the league has gone away from that, just like all the leagues are, whether it's in the NFL with fantasy points and they want high-scoring games. Same thing with the NHL. And also now here with the NBA. Here they want more high-scoring affairs. And again, we all know it's a... It's all about the perimeter shooting and wing players. And if you don't have threats on the three-point line, then you can forget it. You know, this is the new NBA. This is how it is. It's like a fast track. So, and the Nets, you know, they've uh, obviously have hit some uh, some tough times here early on this season. They've lost some tough games, some close games. I understand to beat Cleveland the other night, but then Cleveland's 0-6 and they fired Tyron Lue. So, is it all his fault? I know there was, believe it or not, there was actually a rift from all the reports that were said about wanting to play the younger players, in particular Colin Sexton, the number one draft pick that they uh, took this year, number eight. And Lou ended up playing the veterans. He figured, hey, I'm trying to save my job. I'm playing the guys that I know that I've been to battle with. I'm not playing any of these young guys. And sure enough, that's what got him canned. So it's amazing to think. Here he is. He took over for David Blatt, went to a final, lost that series then came back from the year after 3-1 wins that title goes back to two more NBA finals only to lose to the Golden State Warriors and six games into post LeBron he's shown the door but there was a lot of support for him on even Kevin Love had come out and said hey until we meet again maybe at some other stop down the road I don't know about him playing on another team since Kevin Love just re-signed for a big deal was it four years or five years 100 some odd million and now he's on the shelf for a month so that's when you pretty much have your NBA here early on. And to me, those are just the big news here. You know, as far as going through the teams, I know a lot of the team, uh, the you know, Toronto's gotten off to a fast start. We know about Denver. You know, a lot of the teams that we talked about last week that have gotten off to good starts have certainly been playing well. And uh, that's pretty much early on your NBA. To me, it's the scoring has just been outrageous when you see these final scores on a night-to-night basis. So that's where, you, uh, that's where we're at, people. And I thank you again for downloading and listening to the J Reels podcast. Please tell your friends, tell your frenemies, 
Tell your aunts, uncles, cousins, granddaddy, daddy, whomever is into listening and follow sports. This is the program that you definitely want to tune into each and every week here, whether it's through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher. That's right. I'm all those platforms, people. So no excuse. Go to your phone. Go to your Spotify. Just find me, the J Rose Podcast. Hit subscribe. Leave a rating. Post a review. Again, it goes without saying how much I greatly appreciate that because all it does is just uh, jack up the interest in the sports podcast universe and in turn will just increase the visibility of the program and hopefully garner more guests in the days and weeks to come. You can also check it out on the website. I got to update a little bit, which I uh, plan to tweak here over the course of the next week. jreels.com. I have all my archive shows there. If you're at work and just want to listen to a computer, if you're not on your phone, please feel free to do so. More information about me if you're curious about my evolution as a sports fan and not only my evolution on this program and the things I've done before that, it's all on there. You can also go to my very first podcast, which is actually Zero Zero, My Maiden Voyage, for those who want to know a little bit more about J Reels. And if you need to send me an email or if you want to drop a DM on any of my social media accounts, whether it's Instagram, J Reels, Twitter, J Reels One, just a number, as well as the J Reels podcast on Facebook. The email address is thejreelspodcast at gmail.com. Again, feel free. Any questions, comments, criticism, praise, what you'd like to see about the show, what you want me to tone down, what you want me to, whatever it is, please feel free to reach out. I'm open to any constructive criticism. Trust me, you're not going to hurt my feelings. And I'll certainly be able to listen and we'll correspond however you want to do, however you want to handle this. And I'll be sure to get back to you because again, you guys is one of the reasons why I do this. And going back to the very top of the program, this is my goal to not only put forth credible, knowledgeable, but also entertaining and engaging sports talk for the masses, for those who are on the treadmills, for those who are commuting to work, for those who are whatever it is that you do throughout the course of the day, whether you're cooking, whether you look forward to this program, however which, however ways you can shake a stick at. Again, I uh, truly appreciate it that you do take the time out to uh, get a chance to listen to my voice and what it is I have to say. And I'll be sure to do that not only today, but also the following week, weeks to come here on the J Reels Podcast. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless people. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. Peace.